Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney, and this week, a very special guest, freelance writer, Dia Lucina. Dia, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. We're very, very excited, uh, and you're here, of course, uh, because you are a Waypoint freelance writer and also just a, a critic in the world, and also because I, I think you might have some opinions on the topic of the day, which, of course, this week, we're going to be talking about you know, sort of broadly the lesser entries or, or what is critically conceived of as sort of the lesser entries in long-running series that everybody kind of shits on a little bit, but we we have a place in our heart for them. And this is specifically brought on by, I know you and Rob are both watching uh, a little bit of Star Trek Voyager these days, which I have a very long history with Star Trek Voyager. It's actually one of my most formative TV shows. It is a show that I was obsessed with as a teen it was very formative. I had my very first gay crush ever of all time watching this show when I was 13. It was Bellana Torres, who was the best character on the show, arguably. Uh, so I've, I had a long history with this show, and then I watched it all again about a, like two or three years ago. I kind of went through every modern trek. I did Next Generation, DS9, Voyager, all the way through. And that was a lot of fun uh, and very enjoyable. But I, I have talked long enough on this intro. So we should open it up. Uh, it's a broad question in terms of all media, but also Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly was wary of getting into Voyager because, like, I remember in the 90s just how, like, relentlessly uh, people just, you know, took shots at that show. Like, DS9 was kind of the good and the popular one uh, in some ways, and even that was sort of controversial. Uh, they both were committing the sin of not being uh, more next generation, uh, I think, in that context. But Voyager uh, was sort of described as, uh, the, the you know, one of the weaker, uh, one of the weakest uh, Star Treks ever, ever put on air. And talking with you, Danielle, got me curious about it, like hearing your defenses of the show. So I finally started to uh, dig in. Uh, I'm watching through the original series uh, with my partner uh, for the first time right oh, cool. now. And uh, then in my spare time, my uh, alone time, uh, I'm watching a bit of Voyager. And I have to say, like, perhaps in part because my expectations were set so low, uh, I was really pleasantly surprised uh, by those early episodes. But I think what I'm digging the most is that is the ways in which it does not feel uh, like a traditional Star Trek. And I think one of the big uh, one of the episodes that really helped me uh, put my finger on what it is I enjoy about it and also how it deviates from what is uh, traditional Star Trek is uh, an episode where they find a like so the entire conceit of voyager is that they're stranded on the other side of the galaxy in the uh what the gamma quadrant the or delta, something the delta quadrant yes okay it's in the delta quadrant <laughs> um and basically it's going to take 70 years uh at maximum warp for the voyager to like you know get home uh so they're they, they might be stuck there for the rest of their lives um but they find this wormhole back to the alpha quadrant uh, and it's not big enough for the ship to fly through, but they can sort of uh, send a probe through and basically basically tie two cans together and send one of the cans through the wormhole and hope somebody's there to pick up. And who is there is, in fact, like a Romulan captain. And uh, it's really cool because it's like in Star Trek lore and everything, like a Romulan, Romulan is the worst person that could possibly pick up in some <laughs> ways because like every single 
race in Star Trek eventually like sort of reaches some sort of uh, rapprochement with the Federation. The Romulans never really do. They're they're always pretty guarded, uh, pretty suspicious, pretty secretive, and so there is no when when you see a Romulan captain show up, you realize like. There's no way they're going to get a message out. There's there's no way this guy's going to help. Uh, but it ends up being this really poignant poignant and affecting conversation uh, between uh, Kate Mulgrew's Janeway and this uh, Romulan captain. And it's one of those really there there are two things that came through in this this episode for me that I think Voyager tends to do really well. Uh, one is that because it is so focused on life aboard this one ship. It often assumes a human scale that I find a lot of other Star Treks uh, sometimes struggle to maintain focus on. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Voyager, the the humanity of its subject subjects tends to loom pretty large. And the other part of it is that um, a lot of it is about the way we cope with these feelings of isolation or loneliness and the ways we sort of find the way empathy can save us all in some ways and the way Janeway reaches this Romulan and the way they both sort of thought, like they sort of thought toward each other and he grudgingly like comes around to this idea that um, whatever the problems between their governments, uh, they recognize each other's commonalities and he'll do whatever it takes to help. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful episode and it's, it's an episode that I think show, showcases Voyager at its very best. Um, and like, it's not an episode that I think a lot of other Star Treks would necessarily be capable of, uh, but Voyager's not always that solid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's certainly true. Dia, what's your, what's your like history with the series? Did you watch it a while ago? Are you, are you sort of watching it again? What's your, I, um, when it was, when it was new, um, I kind of ducked in for five minutes here and there, but never really could get into it. Cause I had mostly missed like the kind of first season and um yeah but then i kind of just forgot about it like i knew it was there and i'm like okay yeah big titty board girl all right whatever <laughs> um and that that like that kind of ended up making me just be like okay i i see what you're doing voyager uh i'm, <laughs> I'm good um but my partner and i we ended up watching through all of next generation because she had really never watched much of it so i was like okay we're doing this so we did all of next gen and then I was like, all right, now we get to do DS nine. And so we did DS nine and then we were like, well, I guess there's Voyager. <laughs> and we watched till I think it was the second episode where Kate Bulgrew walks in on Chakotay with his peyote iPod. Yep. And is like, tell me about spirit animals. <laughs> and we both were just like, I just, I can't, we can't, we can't, we stopped. And then we went to watch Enterprise, which. Oh, nothing wrong there. Nothing wrong with Enterprise. You know what? I will defend Enterprise because Enterprise is just batshit, wall to wall batshit um, from just the opening lines of its theme song. But um, yeah, uh, so we kind of put it aside and we watched Enterprise and then we just ran out of television. (laughs) And so we were like, okay, I guess we got to do Voyager now. <laughs> and um, so we did. We we just kind of, we just brute forced our way through it. And yeah, I'm going to take the different approach from Rob in that it's, 
really for me what Voyager is is just how fucking extra Star Trek can truly be at times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like the episode that really just kind of like will forever stick in my mind is um God called Darkling? The one where oh. the, the doctor decides he wants to kind of alter his subroutines to become a little more human and personable and ends up <laughs> hanging out with Byron yep. and Gandhi. Hell yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, it's, oh, this is, these are your, 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 okay, Byron and Gandhi. Those are, the, those are your humanity tutors. Sure. And of course it does not go well. Yeah, it, that episode is fantastic. Like, Fantastic at showing the sort of strengths and weaknesses of Voyager, and it's like absolute. Like this show gets absolutely batshit at times. Like it really does. Um, and that was always something I I sort of liked about it, especially when I was a kid watching this because I was um. God, this was ninety five to two thousand one. So like I was eleven to seventeen during this show, basically, and obsessively watching it pretty much my whole teenage years so it was with like a gap i don't know why but like my sophomore year of high school i didn't watch any of it i had like a one-year reprise from voyager and then i got back into it and then like five days after voyager ended like really ended in 2001 i found farscape which would be the true love of my life in terms of tv and nothing has ever topped it yet uh so i guess i really like batshit extra sci-fi is uh really what i'm trying to say here but in that episode uh, the doctor starts becoming very like unstable and almost has. Uh, there's another episode that's a little more obviously Heckle and Je- uh, Jekyll and Hyde, not Heckle <laughs> and Jekyll. 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 Yeah, yeah, Jekyll, <laughs> Doctor Jekyll. Uh, <laughs> it's just really, really, really uh, funny. But the doctor has such a fascinating arc. I feel like Voyager is, and this is the most interesting thing about it. It is absolutely a different show for each character, like. The quality of the show uh, varies wildly depending on the character you're talking about. I think Janeway's Star Trek is like this really, mostly really strong, a little wacky, but pretty strong show. Like the episodes where she is pretty much front and center are tend to be pretty great. Now, this is accepting the one where she turns into a lizard and Paris also turns into a lizard. That one is terrible by any means uh, whatsoever. Um, God, I, I, there's so much to look forward to. You with the show. have. My I'm journey so jealous. Begun. I'm so jealous, Rob, because like you get to watch this absolute inane bullshit for the first time, and there's so much. There's so much for you uh, to enjoy. But I'll try to keep it from being too spoilery. It's just that some characters have really satisfying arcs and really interesting episodes and really good stuff, and then you have somebody like Harry Kim, uh, who <laughs> doesn't. And I'm sorry, this is a spoiler, but he actually refuses sex with the hottest woman in the universe for no reason uh, imaginable. He just, she is like, let's fuck, take off your clothes. And he's just like, "Uh, you're you're part of the team. You're you're part of the team. And this poor bastard, the actor even said, like, he said he threw the script across the room where he saw that. Like, he just couldn't deal with the fact that, like... This character, this this guy who was like this, like sort of, you know, you know, whatever, kind of, kind of. God, how would you describe Harry Kim? Oh man, uh, uh, everyone's like, uh, moist little brother. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like he does, and certainly that moment because I remember. Um, 
I remember this this moment was talked about in school. Yes. Uh, because can you believe Harry Kim didn't have sex with it's Harry, it's seven of nine right where yes. she's like, uh, I need to get with humanity. I need to figure out what this shit's about. Uh, so Harry Kim, you seem harmless enough. Yep. Uh, let's do this. And it was, uh, you know, sort of a shocking decision, but I think also plays into some really uh, frustrating and enduring tropes around like Asian characters. Uh, sure right, that they're yeah. that they're uh, like sort of inherently, uh, particularly uh, like male Asian characters, uh, like inherently like sexless or so, or something like that. Uh, and and I'm not sure I've seen anything in Harry Kim's portrayal that makes me think it's not going to fall into that trope every time. Uh, basically, yeah, I, I think Voyager's one of its biggest weaknesses is that. It sure wanted to be like a 90s show with somebody from every imaginable culture. Not imaginable, obviously, but somebody from various cultures. And then there were a lot of stereotypes. Yeah, here's some snickering. Yeah, yep. Uh, so there was a moment early on, like I have never uh had a record scratch moment happen so quickly in a in a scene where um so it's it's again early in the series run and it, i think it's just before we get to the peyote ipad um but it's Janeway is describing some feelings of alienation and stress regarding her like her role aboard ship now that her authority is really pretty much entirely moral uh there's no statutory authority anymore because the federation is a million miles away and that's going to just get more and more abstract uh way way more than a million miles away but you know what i mean uh it's just going to keep getting more abstract and she brings that problem to chakotay uh who is uh, a character of like Native American descent. He's part of the Maquis, um, which is, I guess, kind of they pop up in a lot of different Star Treks. And I've always had trouble pinning down what their origin story political beef is. So it, it starts out for the Maquis anyway. It starts out actually in a late Next Generation episode where uh, a whole lot of uh, Native American folks have actually gone and uh, sort of started colonies on other planets. And they had some battle, like the Cardassians attacked them. And there was a whole dispute. It was basically a land dispute. There's a whole sort of colonialism thing going on. But they were sort of, uh, as a political group, forged as rebels against the Federation because the Federation would not protect them against the the Cardassians. And they were still sort of at war with the Cardassians because the Cardassians themselves were attacking them. They were sort of defending themselves against that. And in the in brokering the peace with Cardassia, the Federation kind of threw them under the bus. Uh, so, okay, that's a pretty yeah. thematically consistent, yeah. pretty entirely <laughs> predictable outcome for those events, sure. Yep. <laughs> uh, but so she goes to Chakotay and she's, she explains what the problem is. And at first he's like, well, have you considered? I think, I forget how he leads off into this, but basically he's saying that, um, you know, the 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 uh, Jungian concept of archetypes and uh, you know personalities is something that uh, na- like native cultures had for centuries uh, before. And he uses the word that before Carl Jung thought he discovered it, uh, which I was like, yeah, kind of cool, like way to recognize that, uh, you know, that the, there's a lot of. Uh, like knowledge that when it's it's discovery in the West uh, is often viewed as it, the creation of the very concept. Cool, nice seeing a nod to that. 
And then it turns into the most. It's Kate Mulgrew's Janeway gets very fascinating. Tell me more about your culture. It's so colorful. (laughs) And like just becomes the most like gushingly fascinated person. And Chakotay is just like, yo, you want you want you want spirit animal? I'll keep up with spirit animal. You can do it. We can just we can just go take care of this right now. And she's like, I would fucking love a spirit animal. And Chakotay's like, let's girl, let's go back to my quarters and get you your fucking spirit animal. It'll rule. And this is in no way a source of conflict or tension for me. Uh, and I was like, I was like, uh oh, I'm starting to feel like the character of Chakotay and his indigenous ancestry may not be in the most responsible hands. <laughs> But but Dia, tell me, does Chicote nail it? <laughs> God, um, I don't even know. I like Chicote is like a character that I don't even know where to begin with because, like, I, where where do you even start? They they didn't have a concept for him. For his indigeneity at all. They're just kind of like, yeah, he's a Native American, sure. And, you know, then... But nothing specific beyond that? But nothing, it was nothing specific. And then eventually, after big people, like, at the time, did complain. They were like, what What the hell? Like, who is this dude? What is this character? What are you even doing? And so finally they were like, well, I guess this actor is Mexican-American, so... <laughs> What if we kind of just steer him towards this kind of Mayan like heritage, maybe? And like that's it's kind of Chicote's arc as far as his culture <laughs> just, is it it slowly kind of just goes from this amorphous. Migrating. <laughs> it think it does. Like, he just you know, he just kind of goes a little further south. season seven he's conducting sacrifices to an aztec sun god just like yeah this is what my culture is about we loved it and janeway's like tell me more about the ball sport oh god i mean you're completely right like that's about where this show like yeah that's where it's working on god and it's weird because you know they kind of they set chakotay up kind of as you know as as the the Gainan to uh, Kate Mulgrew's Picard. So, like, huh. you know, once again, we get the magical person of color who will be your spiritual advisor in all things. Yeah. And has nothing better to do than to help you sort out your basic shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it strikes me as, as uh, not fucking awesome. Not... Not fucking awesome. There's there's a God, very much like going back and watching the show a couple of years ago. You know, not as a kid because uh, I. Uh, what's thirteen year old Danielle? Maybe not the most woke person uh, on on the universe. Uh, sheltered, uh, mostly white girl. And then going uh, and watching it a couple of years ago, I was kind of like, wow, it seems like they really uh, sort of picked this cast and they were like, let's be proper 90s people and sort of pick people from different cultures and put them all in, in one multicultural crew and then make the subtext or, or not even the subtext, like the main text is of the early show is that these are two crews from different uh, walks of life. There's the Maquis crew and the Starfleet crew. So it's all about 
getting along in the workplace in a multicultural setting. Like the actual text of the show and the subtext uh, of the casting is kind of going that way. But they sure fucked up on some of it. And like, <laughs> it's almost... But at least... Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, but what at least is consistent about it is that the tone deafness extends in every direction. Like, <laughs> sure. like in addition to the show's weaknesses at navigating, um, like, real world issues of representation and uh, like discussion of difficult subjects. It's also just chock full of characters who have hilariously inappropriate reactions to basic conversational cues. Uh, Like it is a, it is a ship full of people who cannot read a damn sign. Like again, early on Harry Kim is talking to Bolana Torres and he's like, so Bolana, do you, Do you have anyone who's like waiting for you at home? Is there anyone who like care? Basically, <laughs> is there anyone who cares if you're still alive? And basically, like she tenses up and she's like, not really. And at this point, like, look, unless you're tight with somebody, like this is where you kind of veer off. And if somebody wants to discuss it further, but like everyone knows this moment, right? Like you can hear the ice cracking and you get the fuck off that subject and move on. Harry Kim just starts d- drilling in. He's just like, Oh, what's up with that? Like, does, doesn't your family lo- doesn't your family love you? She's my fam. My family is broken. I'm from a broken home. Oh shit! Oh come on! Like, I'm sure your mom like loves you. My mom rejected me and went to went to our went to her home world. We haven't spoken in years. Why is that? Why'd she re- like? It's just the most. It's just the most. Let me just stick my finger in this like gaping wound and just start feeling around in there. And like, at no point does she like rip his head off. Like, and like, you think somebody that like you know she is, uh, she is sort of the Klingon warrior of of the crew. Like at a certain point, you think she's just gonna be like Harry. I swear to God, I am going to throw you out this goddamn airlock. Uh, but that's not what happens. Yeah, and- but. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, but like every like so many characters on the show, like fail at navigating basic. It's it's a weird. It is. I like the show a lot, but in every respect, there's a weird. It's an empathy challenged show. <laughs> yeah, it and it's and it's important to note that nobody on the show is presented as like neurotypical at it at all either. This is not like oh, it's making a comment on something or or trying to show a, a character's limitation. It's like no, these are these are. These are all, you know, neurotypical people. They just don't know how to interact at all uh, in a multicultural setting. Like, it's it's like feeding back on that. And with Bolana, it's, again, love my life, uh, f- favorite character, and also uh, my gay root, as you would call it in uh, the famous uh, very gay movie, But I'm a Cheerleader, where uh, people go to a uh, gay reformation camp, basically teenagers do, and they have to learn about their gay root, the thing that made them gay. I always joke that my gay root was Bolana Torres, because she is uh, incredibly hot and also incredibly competent. She's a Klingon, she's a half Klingon, half human, like, she's both like a warrior and an athlete and also like a brilliant engineer, so she's amazing. But this She has conduct problems, Danielle. She has some conduct problems. She punches out... uh, Lieutenant Carey, who was the first chief engineer of the Star Trek, Voy- of the Starfleet Voyager, rather. Um, and the whole, like, issue uh, of race and sort of multiculturalism sure comes to a head in an early episode where she is split into her constituent parts, where she, her, her Klingon half becomes a person and her human half becomes a person. Ooh, sounds sensitive. 
Uh, yeah. Yup. Star Trek has always had this issue. For as much as, as I, I think that the writers think they're being progressive uh, in the 80s and 90s, they sure fucking had a whole lot of your species uh, determines your traits and your personality and the things that you're good at. They sure fucking do that. And nowhere is that more clear than in this episode where her Klingon side is the tough warrior who keeps her alive. But the human side is the smart one, the weak and smart one. And it's just kind of like disgusting how it's like, oh, your constituent parts uh, just fall along species lines. It's not like, what, you couldn't be a smart Klingon or an athletic human? Like you couldn't you couldn't have, you know, a variation within your species, which is a thing that really does suck throughout pretty much all of Star Trek. I haven't seen the new series yet uh, at all. I don't know if it fixes any of this, but it's it's one of those things that was always an issue. Like, Worf was always kind of an issue for this, like, and what it kind of implicitly said about race, which is not awesome. Let's say that is a not awesome sign <laughs> right there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, like, I, I think for for all that, though, like, there is a weird... There's a weird charm to this strange show. Like, I mean, <laughs> I have this weird revulsion fascination with uh, Tom Paris. Oh, uh, because, oh. like, he is just the, yes. like, like, Star Trek really doesn't have the, like, there are not a lot of characters in Star Trek that I would say, like, are brimming with, like, classic douchebag charisma. <laughs> Um, like, like Kirk has elements of that. Like Riker, not real. Like Riker is man. They they just they just brute forced Riker into happening. They were like, look, he's look. This guy is just sexually irresistible. I don't know what to tell you. Like, just believe it because the show's gonna keep re- reinforcing this. Just look at him. Just eat him up. Look at that fucking beard. Uh, but Tom Paris is this great character. Oh, I don't know if he's a great character, but he's fat. He's a, he's a surprising one. Uh, cause he is so, he is so always horny in this show <laughs> and is always so like wearing that on his sleeve and borderline inappropriate with it. And everyone just, it is so relentless and everyone just kind of rolls with it, that it becomes kind of its own fascinating narrative for me is like watching this character just wrecking ball through this crew. Um, it is, it is just, it, 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 there are so many weird dynamics aboard this ship in part because they brought like the strangest and most tone deaf group of people to the farthest <laughs> reaches of space. And they're like, all right, start walking. <laughs> yeah. Dia, how do you feel about Tom Paris? I, I gotta know. I, I, I always just read Tom Paris as just, this is the insert yourself here, white sci-fi fanboy. <laughs> like, you just almost just, like, put, like, the, the, the you know, the kind of cutout marks around him with just, like, mm-hmm. blank out his face and just, like, your photo here. And, <laughs> like, that that was always kind of my read of Tom Because <laughs> he's just, he's just this generic space horn dog. Yeah. Like it's I look I am never for the rest of my life I'm never going to get over when he shows everyone his holodeck sex dungeon. Right? <laughs> like that's his icebreaker by the way. Like that's Tom <laughs> Paris's like oh like let's how how should people best get to know me? 
I know. I'm going to take him to this virtual brothel I built, uh, which is modeled after the one in my the, the after my former home. I guess uh, this this is basically where I lived. Uh, yeah, it is such a bizarre uh, show, and and yet I do, and and yet I kind of adore it for its weirdness. Um, I, I totally understand why Danielle, you sort of. Uh, really like really identify with this thing yeah it's oh man it's like it's hard to reconcile its faults because i I do think this show is pretty fucking racist sometimes and to be clear uh fails on on sort of multiple basic writing levels especially uh god there's like a good quarter of the episodes each season that are just fucking stinkers just terrible terrible episodes that i still certainly enjoy on some level but man there's some stink ass episodes a lot of it for me uh again like watching it again as an adult is the fact that <clears throat> somehow some way uh an entire uh you know series of producers in in hollywood a series of paramount producers and writers made a show where the women characters are a thousand times more interesting than the men characters, at least for the most part. Like, Janeway is kind of an amazing character. I think she is a, I just, like, to use a phrase, pardon pardon my French, but she is a messy bitch in a lot of ways. Like, she really fucking is. And I love her for that. I love that she, like, probably is suffering from some anxiety and depression and some other stuff going on, but she never lets it, like mess with her confidence and her ability to lead and her ability to be like, no, I am in charge. Like, that's how this is. That's how it's always going to be. I'm 5'1". I don't care. I have beautiful makeup and I change my hair all the time and I don't care. Like, this is me. This is me today. This is me every day. I love that about her so much. Uh, I love what Kate Mulgrew does with that character. I think she's part of a long line of Star Trek actors that are a thousand times better than the material. And so they do interesting things inside of their roles, even if the writing is not up to par. I think she does interesting stuff with that material. Uh, I just pray to God she never stops channeling Catherine Hepburn. Oh, uh, she does. Oh, no, she can't. Yeah. (laughs) She's incapable. (laughs) Yep. It's really good. I actually really love... uh, Belana Torres's arc, actually, as a character. Like, I, I love some of the stuff that she faces down and deals with. I love the sort of mental health, like, allegories that, that happen with her, as much as I hate that some of it is, like, racially motivated, and I hate that some of it is very much like, oh, okay, your things are down to your species. They also do interesting stuff with her and her father, and they do stuff with her and, like, her human family and and how she is rejected in a lot of ways and she feels like she's rejected because of who she is in a lot of ways and they they actually go to some interesting places later on in the show with that and with that character i think it sucks that kess uh and jennifer leon are sort of written off the show for um you know basically like a woman with enormous breasts uh that are in captain janeway's face at all times because she's literally like breast eye level all the time so she's oh, so kess basically gets Oh, they fridge her, yeah. Kes gets spaced. It sucks, because I think she is a great character. She's actually Yeah, no, she's really good. Her scenes with the Doctor are fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, As a pure Hollywood-ass piece-of-shit decision to just bring a hot woman kind of on the show. But, to her credit, Jerry Ryan also ended up being a much better actor and performer than I think they thought they were getting, necessarily. 
So her character goes through some really interesting arcs as well. Uh, I don't love where it ends. I I don't think either. Have either of you gotten all the way through the show? Dia, have you watched the no. whole thing? No, I have not. I'm on okay. season six now. Okay, great. Uh, I'll just say I don't love uh, where Seven of Nine ends. I feel very strongly that Seven of Nine and Janeway should have become lovers and just been like, fuck all of you. I don't care. This is my this is my girl, even though I am boob to eye level with her. We belong together, and it's beautiful. Uh, and I may or may not have read a lot of that fan fiction when I was a lot younger. And I'll just uh, I'll just throw that out there. But I do think, like to be serious, I do think the show does some really cool things with women characters, and that always kind of made me happy, even when it just shits the bed in other <laughs> respects, in other aspects. And I also will say. Uh, one thing that has always kept me liking the show is the sense of adventure in the show because they're far away from uh, the Federation, because they're far away from Starfleet, because some of the rules are a little relaxed and because they're always uh, sort of fighting a monster of the week or the issue of the week. They can really go to some zany and funny places on this show. There's a little bit more freedom here than Next Generation had and certainly that uh, than Deep Space Nine had, although Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine is maybe the, the sort of high quality bar for Star Trek mm-hmm. series that all tricks should be, probably be sort of compared to. I think in terms of, uh, to use a uh, an old video game journalism term, the fun factor is very, very high uh, on Star Trek Voyager. Well, yeah, none of the other Star Treks have Jason Alexander as Space Rumpelstiltskin and the head of TechNet. <laughs> what? Ah, yes, I remember that. <laughs> Jason Alexander just pops up in Voyager. Jason yep. Alexander pops up as um, as literally Space Rumpelstiltskin. Yep. <laughs> oh, th- that sounds... The Rock he- is in there. Oh, God, yeah. He- what? Yep. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's some yeah. good shit. There's some goofy-ass shit. There are episodes sort of later on in the series. I, I don't want to spoil you too much because it's actually such a fucking delight, Rob, but where they're riffing on old sci-fi tropes, like really old sci-fi tropes, and it is... A true delight uh, to get to those uh, episodes. They use the holodeck in some really weird and fun ways, including sex holodeck in weird and fun ways, and that's awesome. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, the show has fun. <laughs> Listen to Dia's enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dia. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just it's like I mean, this is the thing. Like I can't go to Star Trek for. It's never going to be politically interesting to me, you know. It's sure. it's even at its best. I'm like, okay, you're like '90s w- liberal progressivism at at best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like, so, and the writing. Let's be real here. Science fiction television writing is always very hit and miss. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you have to go for just zany. Like, it's just like, okay, we're going to get some decent character. I actually, um, I do, to go back to Danielle's point, uh, I do like Janeway. Um, she might have actually become my favorite captain. Yes. Yes. Simply because she is the messiest bitch. <laughs> yes. You know, like, like Kirk is always going to go with just the asshole option. Mm-hmm. And Picard is always going to be kind of, you know fuddy-duddy until he needs to make a decision and then he'll make a decision and it'll be diplomatic but like a little bit you know with some fuerte behind it <laughs> um and then um archer from enterprise uh i just keep waiting for him to leap um <laughs> yeah, a, wimp, a, wimp, 
went there. Um, but like Kate Mulgrew really does. She is actually complicated as a as as a captain, and I like that about her because she's like kind of has to be you know a bureaucrat amongst her crew, but she's also kind of you know adrift with like no backup, no support, no real you know structure to her captainship and she's just like okay we just gotta get home and gotta do that you guys get with it (laughs) and so she does make decisions that i'm like oh i wasn't actually expecting you to do that and that's actually really interesting for a star trek show because like nine times out of ten you kind of like okay i know what this captain's gonna do in the situation all right let's just let's just do it something i like about the way she's portrayed too is like she doesn't build like so with Picard every decision is sort of built up too like you can see the gears turning as he sort of arrives at the course of action he's going to pursue uh Janeway seems to fly like straight and level until she abruptly decides with almost like no external like discussion about it sometimes like okay we need to radically change our course of action here and basically like throws the entire thing in like a snap turn exactly and everyone is just like holy shit wait what and she was like yeah i just set the prime directive on fire what the fuck who cares let's go (laughs) keep up keep up keep up i just i love her more and more as like the older i get like <laughs> when I was young, I thought she was pretty rad, you know, pretty cool. I just like, you know, I, I'm I'm having a birthday soon. I'm turning 34 soon. I'm entering my mid 30s real soon. And like, just the older I get, the more I'm like, oh god, I just I don't want to care like her. I just I want. I think I kind of want to be her on some level. Maybe not her shittier parts, but like her more awesome parts. Yeah, I I I want to be that. Yeah. I want to be her. I want to not give a shit and just do her best and whatever. And the rest is just, I don't care. I don't care. So I am curious though, Dio, when we, when we mentioned like talking about popular, like what is, what are commonly regarded as like lesser entries in franchises or series uh, that like you just like adore. Uh, Like what's yours? What's, what's the thing that you feel gets like unfairly knocked? Oh man. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm trying. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a basic bitch uh, <laughs> when it comes to my my series. Is, um, but you know, one thing that I do think um, gets unfairly knocked is Star Trek Enterprise. Okay. Yeah, all right. And and I think because I mean, one. Okay, that opening theme song. Um, is wonderful as long as you picture like a dachshund running across a field because <laughs> it's been a long road getting from there to here but it's that dachshund's time damn it <laughs> or at least or what no actually the, the dog is a beagle on uh porthos uh, the captain's dog um on yes Enterprise. and i mean really you know you need to accept that this is a star trek that the captain has a dog and that dog is a beagle, and that beagle is Porthos, and Porthos is perfect. Um, Porthos actually does figure into some episodes um, as a, a major actor in the events, and that's important because Star Trek clearly needs more dogs. <laughs> 
like I think Enterprise does get like it gets the same kind of shit that Voyager got and still gets in that it is it's batshit. It's not you know mainline Star Trek. This is what the fandom expects. Um, but because of that, you know, it could pull out shit like the temporal cold war. I, I mean, oh shit. That was awesome. That was, that was awesome. And there is like the weird dude who just shows up and he's like, and it's like, he's basically like, you know, um, how from, from, from fucking quantum leap. And it's just like, you're sitting here guiding Archer. Oh my God. I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> Explain, because I think this is, because I think a lot of people bailed on, like, people remember the early parts of Enterprise, where it's a really kind of rudderless show uh, in some ways. I think that's the other thing that turned people off of it, is, like, it really took, like, a lot of tracks, it took time to find its stride. Uh, but by the time it did, a lot of people already walked away. Uh, so I think a lot of people probably bailed before the temporal Cold War was really, like, introduced and explained. Uh, can you dig it? Because this, this is a cool concept that, oh, it, that, that I, it plays around with. I actually like and now I have to remember it. Um Uh Rob, do you remember it better than I do? Because I'm actually like drawing blanks trying to remember it. I'm just remembering yeah, and there is a cabal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there is a cabal and there is a dude who was trying to keep time together. Um Yeah, no, I don't like I don't remember it super well, so you're kind of calling me out on... Uh, I was really hoping you'd explain it so I'd be able to fake my way through this conversation better. Uh, but no, I, th- I thought so, it was like... So a- there, was, there, was like a t- there were time-traveling factions, right? Like, there, were, um, there was the Cabal that I remember. There were, um, uh, there were the dudes who were opposed. They, like, they really hated the, the like, not-fucking-with-time agreement. Um... And then there were the, uh, there was like the 31st century, was it, wait, yeah, it was the 31st century uh, Federation of Planets who were trying to, like, keep time together. <laughs> like, this is the problem, the problem is, like, discussing it is actually, like, and trying to remember it. Like, the reason Rob and I really can't recall it well enough is because it's so kind of spread out and diffuse and yeah i'm looking at a wiki here and there's an alien in what appears to be an ss uh, uniform so oh, no. uh, yeah it, like it, it clearly goes some places uh but it does sort of seem like the implication was so there's always been like elements of like the technology exists in star trek to metal with the timeline but like nobody's ever really done it but like always implied in the background of star trek is like if you wanted to have like a time cop situation in star trek you could you could have that like happening in the background and enterprise kind of just goes there right it kind of goes in this place of like well actually the timeline is always uh in, in jeopardy it goes there so hard you end up spoiler alert um you end up at the enterprise is now like space nazis oh at no. one point and there actually is. There's an abrupt shift. They change the um, the opening, and now it's like this kind of very like harsh militaristic. And there's like instead of the the like black and white photographs and like uh, oceanographic charts, it's like tanks and bombers and you know, it, yeah. And they become space Nazis uh, for. A it's been a long minute. way getting from there to here, and it's an Aryan bloodline like- shown on the screen, <laughs> <laughs> just like. <laughs> God. 
<clears throat> and it's and it's amazing. Like it's just it's just like you guys went there because why not? Like and I kind of like Enterprise is it's always very rudderless. Um, even when it does kind of get its kind of the sense of itself, um, it 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 just it just decides it's like we're just gonna do this today. Why not? Like, <laughs> like, why not have this episode? Um, you know, and what? Well, and it's a show that's trapped a lot by Star Trek. Like, I think one of the things that Enterprise ends up having to deal in, deal with a lot is um, it has to be the origin story for a lot of stuff you recognize from later Star Treks. Right. So, like, and in some places it's handled well. Like the unveiling of the Romulans in Enterprise is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. Like. That this sort of predates the uh, Romulan Empire, and it's more uh, like at this point the Vulcans seem only dimly aware that the Vulcan that the Romulans have become like a political like nation state. They're still viewed as kind of a rogue splinter faction uh, or her- heretical faction of the Vulcans, uh, and like Enterprise starts digging into this idea that like no, actually the Romulans like made choices had their own reasons for the choices they were making and in some ways their hand was forced by like more uh, doctrinaire uh, vulcans and this is cool stuff to dig into on the other hand there's also episodes where you know archer and the crew of the enterprise come to a planet that is basically in its own version of the renaissance it's all like you know tall ships and blah blah (laughs) and there's some sort of like shakespearean drama bullshit happening on the planet's surface and they're like boy can we intervene in this or not i don't know it feels kind of weird and i shit you not there's a point where archer is like yes i think i think starfleet is going to have to have some sort of standing order or (laughs) directive (laughs) <laughs> that governs how we handle uh, developing societies, and I'm like, God damn it! Like, but that's kind of that's what Enterprise has to be. It has to be the like, it has to be the tales from Moss Eisley Cantina of Star Trek <laughs> in some ways, where it's like everything has an origin story, and we're gonna get to it. It all starts here. Yeah, but we also I... get to bring back the Andorians oh, in good. the form of Jeffrey Allen Combs. Uh, as Shran on Enterprise, which is just so like I I I keep recalling um you know you remember the commercials they had for like, was it was a Direct TV where they had Rob Lowe dressing up as yeah <laughs> I I keep calling him with from his various appearances as like you know um he was Rob Lowe for Crackle when he was on DS9 <laughs> as Wei Yun. <laughs> and um, I think what I call it, they call him Rob Lowe on CISO. Like, yeah, this is like Rob Lowe with CISO was um, <laughs> his character on um, a Shran on Star Trek Enterprise. But he's got the, the little Andorian dealy boppers. <laughs> <laughs> and someone is off stage clearly with like two little like joysticks and they just move. Them. <laughs> and there are some scenes where he's like really like. You know, making a point about like, you know, look, you guys, you're kind of new to space and you kind of suck. And like, yeah, we may be, you know, warlike, but so are these guys over here. Maybe stop stepping on our decks. And then whoever controlling the dealy boppers during this like big emotional point will just be like, 
And it completely undercuts the entire scene. And it's beautiful. <laughs> I love that so much about sci-fi in general. When like the utterly ridiculous costume or prop or whatever, it was clearly made out of friggin' cardboard or like shitty feely boppers or whatever. <laughs> and like, we're talking about humanity and life and death and ethics and morals and I'm sorry, my cardboard rock that was sentient, I just kicked it, and now there's a dent in it. Can some PA please come over and fix this? Like, this is so wonderful. There's something so, like, that's a perfect metaphor for humanity, I feel like. Like, oh, yes, we ascend to lofty ideals, but all we really have is cardboard that somebody painted. It's, it's amazing. I, I've been quiet during the Enterprise discussion because... I haven't watched any Enterprise. Oh, Danielle. I, I know. Look, I, I will continue to watch Voyager, but I need you to watch Enterprise because we okay. need to talk about it. Okay. Because That's it's a, a lot. Good. Like, it's, it's especially the amount of horror. But is it extra? Oh, God. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay, the Sonic Shower is pretty extra. I, I mean, this, it, oh, like, boy. I, I, I can't remember if I'm remembering this correctly or not, but like, I think it's in the pilot. They're going through like a decontamination shower, and it's literally just the actress who plays DePaul in a sports, a skin tight sports bra <laughs> with like just, you know, nipples that could cut glass. And the camera is just in love with this. It's, the problem is, it's not the pilot. It's every time they beam up or whatever the fuck well, they well, do. Well, no, like, because eventually, eventually they, fu- like, they, someone decided actually that, you, okay, look, we need to get her a padded bra. <laughs> this poor woman she was cold and like oh, it's no. just like you just sit and you're like oh my god someone someone did this and then like they really they really no. wanted to go for this to sell this they really also wa- they have to rub oil on each other that's <laughs> glimmer glitter <laughs> oil do? it's glitter oil okay let's be real glitter here oil. like in <laughs> the enterprise has no like there's like there's no way to get clean on the Enterprise, except unless you and your coworkers, uh, in sort of a uh, mixed gender group, go into this uh, mood lit like porn set, basically. Okay. <laughs> now, Rob, I know you you have seen the movie Manhunter, yes. Oh, how, like we're talking about the Michael Mann classic, yeah, 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 uh, right? No, okay. fucking a. Well, it's the same lighting that Michael Mann decides to use for um. What's his face? Like this, this, the 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 sex scene in the beginning the of the movie. Killer? No, with um Graham and his wife in. Okay. It is it is that blue, like mm-hmm. you know, mood lighting. That just it is just kind of like every time you see it, you're like, oh my god, this is this is like the sex scene from Manhunter with Graham and his wife. And the sonic shower starts to like hum, so there's like ambient sound, and then everyone's like, well, time to oil up, and. uh and everyone's like, yes, this is entirely normal, and this is definitely how this should be. Uh, it isn't weird at all for, like, the captain, his chief engineer, and his science officer, Vulcan lady, to just be, like, rubbing oil into each other aggressively uh, for minutes at a time. Well, and it's it's extra interesting because later they actually, I think is like, I don't remember if DePaul goes through Pond Far or what's the deal, but... Um, she does. Yeah, I know oh, she. But like, yeah. but eventually there is a scene where it gets weird in the sonic shower. Oh no! And everyone's kind of like, "Oh wait, what's with the horny in the sonic shower?" This is supposed to be a completely platonic thing with us rubbing glitter oil into each other's body <laughs> with mood lighting. Um, Everyone keeps asking if I can have sex in the sonic shower, buddy. I work here. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I need to watch this. I mean, this sounds like my shit right here. And, like, and then you can join in on the wonderful, the wonderful, wonderful politics that is the uh, Vulcan mind melding cult with AIDS. I remember uh, reading about this. Now, I don't like, yeah, because I, I remember. Oh, there was that a was whole the part thing. I forgot about the whole Romulan thing. There's there's a whole thing about the, you know, the discourse uh, from like 10 years ago or so on like the LGBTQ Star Trek episodes. The like three episodes. There's a Next Generation episode. I mean, there's like a tiny thing on Voyager, but Voyager pretty much uh, doesn't have this because Seven of Nine and Janeway were really supposed to be a couple. And then they fucked up. Anyway, there's like an episode of Next Generation that is supposed to be something of a trans allegory. There is... A DS9 episode that is something of a queer, just like a you know sort of cis lesbian uh, allegory, and then there's this, which is supposed to be more like an AIDS crisis allegory, where she has like a, a it's not an STD, it's like a mind meld. It, it's it's TD. It's, it's, yeah. it's mind meld AIDS. It like it, yeah. it, and it and it was and it was intentional. Like it was they. I know they like they set out to write. We we are going to write an episode about the AIDS epidemic, and it's like what. Well, yeah. the, so yeah. the Vulcan response is to be like, whoa, we better ban all mind melding. That's kind of the, that, and so like, I think part of the arc of Enterprise is this is how mind melding becomes like a thing again, is that oh. I don't like it. I I had forgotten a lot of this. I had forgotten that. Uh, well, I don't remember, but like, they probably nailed it. They, they probably handled it right, completely. They, they end up finding a separatist ship of people who were like, no, mind melding is great, and we're going to mind meld in our own little private pleasure boat in space. Um, and I think, God, does, does T'Pol get forcibly she mind sure does. melded? Yeah. Oh, no. no, I don't think it was forcible, though. No? Are you sure? I thought. I think she meets a charismatic, like, dude and he's like try it you'll love it and she's like i don't know yeah and he's like check this out so she gets kind of coerced into mind melding mm. with with dude who has uh romulan mind meld aids oh no yeah it's... there's no mind meld condoms in this world <laughs> how can you condom a mind meld like it's <laughs> i mean they, think of, like... they have magic technology with nanites and shit i feel like you couldn't make like a little little skull cap, and that's like your mind well, melt condo. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I. Uh, oh god! Skull cap, you know. Again, they probably nailed it. They, they <laughs> probably handled it really well uh, and uh, responsibly, and didn't lean on any ugly stereotypes or victim blaming. Oh, oh god! Um, I do want gosh. to watch this show. I do very Dia, much want to watch it. You reminded me. So I have two. Uh, I, I have two like lessers that I, I kind of secretly love. Yes. Um, the first, and I've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but um, I actually think maybe the best Jason, the the, the best of the Bourne movies, mm-hmm. is the one that doesn't have Jason Bourne in it. Oh. Uh, the Bourne Legacy, which is the one they made with Jeremy Renner. Oh God! Yeah, um, I remember that. Is a bureaucratic drama with occasional guns. Oh, that's cool. uh, but mostly it's about everyone dealing with the ramifications of what the entire Bourne series is all about. These sort of clockwork spy assassins and everything. But it has um, 
It just has this growing feeling of paranoia and uncertainty. It's a lot of people being sort of forced. It's a lot of like a lot of the apparatus of national security and um, like imperialist foreign policy in some ways happens just out of sight. And if you want to know more, a lot of it is like you you could right, but like a lot of uh, a, a lot of what enables this requires not thinking about it in some ways. <laughs> sure, and. The Born Legacy is a great deal of people suddenly being forced to think about it uh, and forced to consider, uh, you know, what it is they're they're actually a part of. Uh, so it has just like an utterly appalling but brilliant uh, sequence of a um, basically a workplace shooting, uh, but it is being done to basically wipe out a lab full of scientists who are part of the uh, the Treadstone project, right? Uh, and then the sole survivor of that is later visited by government investigators uh, who present themselves as like uh, both investigators and like trauma counselors um, and are actually yet another like assassination team. And it's this pretty like awful sequence where they're uh, gaslighting this woman uh, and basically like making her feel like somehow she caused the entire workplace shooting before they then try to murder her and stage a suicide. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's some, yeah, it is some grisly stuff, uh, but it's also grounded and relatable in a way that like a lot of the Jason Bourne movies are not um, it, like the characters don't feel super heroic uh, in this. They, they feel more like uh, people caught up in, in a spy drama. Uh, and then there's a lot of the, um, again, a lot of like bureaucratic track covering. And uh, memorably, there's a great sequence where um, Jeremy Renner's character ends up at this cabin where they conduct training with the, uh, you know, with the super spies, basically. And he's supposed to be there alone, but he comes across um, Oscar Isaac. Okay. There. And they, they, it's this completely like almost out of context. It doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, but it is these two guys who like are trained to be solitary and mistrustful assassins suddenly thrown together. And it's this like little short play, basically, of these two guys trying to figure out if one of them is there to kill another. Um, while also trying to, for one of the few times in their lives, try to have a genuine conversation with somebody in the same line, line of work who you can actually talk to. Huh. Uh, it is a fascinating uh, sequence. Uh, the entire thing, it was written and directed by, uh, I think, Tony Gilroy, uh, oh, okay. who wrote the first, I think, two of the first three Bourne movies, maybe all three, uh, and wrote Michael Clayton. Uh, and then they sort of, I like froze him out for the most recent Jason Bourne movie, which was dog shit. Oh God, it was so bad. It was, it was awful. And a big part of that is because they decided they didn't need their fucking writer. Uh, they could, they, they knew how to make a good Bourne movie. Uh, and the answer is no, they did not. <laughs> it is, it's unbearable. Uh, but Bourne legacy, I think got unfairly knocked for being off brand Jason Bourne. Uh, and actually I think it's, on any given day, that's probably the movie out of the series that I am most likely to watch. Um, the other one, yeah. you reminded me of this, Dia. I think Manhunter gets overlooked oh. as a Hannibal movie. Uh, 
Absolutely. a lot of times. And now admittedly, I'm always here for Michael Mann. Like <laughs> I am that guy. I, I am like, oh man, like I think Collateral is one of the greatest American movies ever made. I'll get me drunk. I'll make that case for you. Sure. <laughs> uh, but I watched Manhunter uh, not that long ago and I was like blown away by what an excellent like 80s crime movie uh, it is. And actually, I think it's one of the best uh, movies in the, I guess, for lack of a better word, the, the Hannibal. Ver- I don't give a shit. Uh, but it's the, the, Hann- the Hannibal Lecter is a character in this movie, but it's not a fucking Hannibal movie, if that makes sense. And in, in good ways. Well, I mean, Manhunter is, I mean, that's, that is, that's my, you know, Hannibal Lecter movie. Like, I like the other ones. I've watched the other ones. I enjoy them. But no, like, <laughs> give me Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter any day. Like, he's just, it's, it's just, it's, he's just so good. He's actually, like, he's over, he's, he's creepy without being over the top creepy. Um, the way I think Anthony Hopkins can be at times. Yeah. Yeah. Like Hopkins is, uh, I think it be, it becomes difficult too, because like, um, so you got silence of the lambs, but then everyone's like, Oh man, we'd love Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter so much. Give me more of that. And boy, they sure do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they make an entire movie. That's basically like fan service for like, do you just want this erudite Englishman to like hiss in your ear for three hours and then eat people occasionally? <laughs> Uh, and people were like, fuck yeah, it sounds awesome. And they were like, well, we made it. Here you go. Um, and it gets weird too, because it starts to get into the like, okay, now you're, now you are 100% just like valorizing, glamorizing the brutal serial killer, mm-hmm. um, who is like 100% a sadist. Uh, it doesn't matter that like there are characters positioned as like, oh, it's cool. Hannibal's your friend. He likes Clarice. It's it's all good. He's on her side. Uh, yeah, I like in Manhunter. Brian Cox is is playing. Brian Cox is playing a much more grounded uh, Hannibal Lecter. I, I think the way to describe it is like there's a tired caged animal aspect to him. Like it's he feels like a guy who wore the mask for years and now has been unmasked and is almost relieved at it. Like he lives in his like supermax facility and like gives his cryptic clues but like genuinely seems in some ways still creepy as hell but also relieved to not have to pretend to be someone else mm-hmm. yeah. and he does like i mean he, there's just like there's very subtle things that brian cox does in that movie like there's just like one shot where he just kind of he's he's you know clearly kind of just frustrated and bored and he just kind of like looks up at the ceiling and just kind of clucks his tongue silently and it's just like, yeah, yeah, I totally get this character now just from this. And I don't need anything else. <laughs> or, you know, God, I'll never forget the um, where he's trying to get uh, Will Graham's address. And uh, he calls, um, like, uh, he calls the the FBI. I can't remember who he calls. But he, um, he gets a secretary and he's, and he's just like, well, it's just, it's, there's a Rolodex on the desk, right? Well, zip that pointer down to the letter G. That's right, and it's just like it's just like oh god, like, and he's 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 chewing the piece of gum that he's used to, um, like short circuit the phone so he can make a call, um, 
<laughs> and it's it's just it's so just understated and eerie, but like uh God, yeah, no, Manhunter's great. Well, and it's also gratifyingly um consistent, like all Michael Mann movies are about men who define themselves by their work. Um yes. and if you're on board with that theme, that's great. Can he work beyond it? Not really. Uh, he sort of gestures in that direction with, um, oh shit, what was the uh, public enemies? Uh, he, he he sort of tries to make uh, uh, is it Marilyn Cotillard uh, into like a major character, but like she it's a Michael Mann movie. Like yeah. women yeah. women are mostly that are clutch their pearls while their obsessed boyfriends, uh, you know, walk away. Right. Like, like women's roles in these movies is predominantly to be the woman that De Niro leaves behind in heat uh, in one way or another. Uh, But that being said, um, what's cool here is that, like, with Graham, you almost feel like you've missed the first act. Graham is already uh, a character who has gone way too far down the rabbit hole before and has now pulled himself back. It's like you are picking up a story after like the the it feels like a sequel in some ways like Graham has already been to the brink he came back and now he is sort of consciously deciding to delve back into the pursuit of a serial killer um and the the, the whole conceit and it's overstated as all hell like it is not subtly acted in key moments uh but it's like he he over identifies with the killers and just like basically starts living as they do um and what's cool is that it does build to this uh really tense race to stop this killer uh who you also see struggling to bring himself out of a spiral you also see this guy try to break his own like patterns and like try to live like a normal person but he's a disgusting like monster uh in, in some ways um and so, like, the thing that he attempts to do to basically break out of his, uh, you know, of his ritual killings is he finds a nice girl who doesn't judge him for, uh, for, for who he is. He, he stakes all his salvation on uh, his perceived relationship, the strength of his relationship uh, with this, this one woman who uh, has no idea who she's dealing with here. And when she commits some really small transgression you see him completely come undone and start performing the ritual around her. And it's really fucking chilling. Um, because do you remember, do you remember this dude? Do you remember the strong as I am? Oh yeah. Uh, sequence. Well, because she just kind of gets dropped off by a coworker at home who is interested in her and she's really not, but he's watching her from uh, his van across the street, I think. Yeah. 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 And and there's like there is there's that that strong as I am like the the build up and he's just watching it and you can feel Tom Noonan just obsessing in this moment misreading what's going on. And well, and he has this thing where he um, what is it? He imagines he imagines uh, his victims, particularly women, without like eyes or mouths right. or something like that. Um, and so you see him just like staring 
daggers mm-hmm. at her as she says goodnight to this guy. And this music is building up. And it is a, it is, if you like 80s synth anthems, like Boyd and Michael Mann, like fucking, like he found you one. It's real good. And it just keeps building up. And slowly on the, you know, on the cell, <laughs> on the celluloid, uh, like the, the film, it's like her eyes are suddenly like, erased with like washes of silver and she is the spectral figure with just like glowing silver eyes and mouth as this guy basically begins to prepare his next murder um and it's it's um it's tremendous uh i think it is one of the best uh lecter movies uh out there and it's actually a great michael mann movie that a lot of people tend to overlook so on two levels i think it's kind of an overlooked classic this whole discussion really makes me want to watch the Hannibal TV series again, which is a fucking masterpiece as well. And like, oof. Yeah. I, I, well, I need to watch that. I sure need to watch Manhunter. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll very briefly say, I think Banjo Tui is real good. I've talked about it before on the podcast, various podcasts. <laughs> uh, but Banjo Kazooie is probably Speaking better. Speaking of Manhunter. Uh, spe- yeah, he's a bear. Uh, they hunt men, so it's definitely relevant, uh, right here. Uh, <laughs> but as, as, like, underrated sequels go, Banjo 2 is real good. It does some very interesting things. It, it does a lot of things with, uh, sort of interconnected worlds that would not really be super touched upon in 3D platformers until just last year with, uh, Mario Odyssey. So, there. I guess it took, you know, 17 years for it to <laughs> really become resonant, but there it is. <laughs> um, and I also... This is not like a sequel, uh, but it is very much of a piece. I think Jupiter Ascending uh, is beautiful, wonderful space garbage, and it's a lot more fun, and I like it a lot better than, uh, what was it, Galaxy? What? what the stupid Marvel, the Marvel thing. Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, Guardians, yeah. And it was like, it moved its release date to not compete with Guardians, but they were sort of pitted against each other. Uh, nonetheless, in terms of sort of theme as goofy space movies about goofy space things, uh, I would watch Eddie Redmayne in that movie all day long, uh, well above Chris Pratt in his movie. I mean, his abs are nice, and that's fine. Uh, and Guardians of the Galaxy is, is a totally fine, fun little movie. Uh, but man, I, I'd, I'd much rather watch Jupiter Ascending. And, uh, the, you know, the famous quote of it being the movie that Tina Belter would make if she had $200 million. Uh, I would I would watch that uh, any day above most Marvel movies. So I guess those are mine. I have others. I, st- I also think Bioshock Two is probably the best Bioshock, but that's not a controversial. That doesn't yeah, yeah, it doesn't feel like it's controversial anymore. But back in 2010, it sure was. Yeah, because nobody fucking played Bioshock Two. That was the problem. Is like everyone's like, "There's no way that's the good Bioshock," and it's like, "Well, have you played it?" And it's like, "No," because it's it's not made by Irrational. Yeah, I mean, like, and, that's, I was gonna say, you know, Dark Souls Two, but now people have actually played it, and now they yeah. understand that it's the best one. They've come around a little bit. But I think there is an element of a lot of what gets things pigeonholed as being the lesser entries and in installments is they're the ones that commit the sin of not giving like fans more of the exact same. Yeah. Uh, in some ways they are viewed as like uh, heretical products. Uh, yeah. So like Bioshock two was the corporate like commodified like Bioshock. It was like, well, 2k just insisted they make it. And uh, you know, Ken Levine and irrational aren't on it. And yeah, but like uh, what was uh, Jordan? Uh, no, it was Dean Thomas. 
I think so. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, was on it, and he was instrumental to a lot of, uh, you know, the key uh, irrational uh, games and levels. Uh, But, like, nevertheless, it got that reputation. And I think in the same way, like, all things Hannibal will become about this worship of this one Anthony Hopkins portrayal, right? And if you're not that, then you don't count. Uh, Star Trek gets really narrowly defined as basically being in some way you need to be remixing the original series and next generation. And if you're not doing that and maintaining some sort of allegiance to whatever the fuck people have projected as Roddenberry's vision, um, then you're also somehow not Trek. We're seeing a little bit of that discourse around discovery as well, but like it happens again and again, uh, this idea that, well, you're not, serving me more of the exact same dish that I loved before ergo this is the betray- you know this is a betrayal this doesn't really count this is this is the failure yeah which is yeah. it feels like a very nerd culture thing right like a very you've you've committed the sin of this like I, I cannot uh, give you my dollars I, and now I will send hate mail to its creators uh, online it feels very yeah. it feels very of a piece with uh a lot of nerd culture stuff. Um, yeah. Yes. I, I think we should probably go into our weekend correspondence at this point. Yeah, we might need to cut it to just might, one letter might here. just do the first letter. Or do you think the yeah. second one? Probably the, the first one for today. I yeah, guess, the first one. Because we got a good one. We got a good one here. Uh, this comes from Harry. <clears throat> Getting ready. Here we go. Dear Danielle and Rob, and I'm going to add, Harry didn't write this because, of course, he didn't know, Dia, that you'd be on today. But I'm going to say also, Dia, because we would love to hear your thoughts on this, too. (laughs) The meat of my question is, how much should we rely on critics to shape our opinions and thoughts on new and old media? Entirely. (laughs) Next question. This came up most recently in your discussion in the new Blade Runner movie. Your discussion brought up a bunch of interesting themes and motifs that the movie investigated, including gender rights, labor politics, and a really interesting look at some of the different characters. You also talked about your old theories of what happened in the original and how they might have shifted. But you also mentioned a relative of Danielle's who said, so was he a robot or not? Just, I'm, I'm giving it the proper accent so they know. This pretty much mirrors my immediate response to the film. I do love what these movies try to do, but sometimes I don't really, quote, get it. Until after hearing a couple of podcasts or reading a couple of articles. I do love it after that, but it does take me some time. I also started watching Legend of the Galactic Heroes, thanks to Rob's gushing. And while I love that series so, 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 so much so far, I do sometimes worry that I'm missing a crucial bit of context or subtext. Like if it's based uh, off of something from Japan happening at the time. I also don't really know what the Prussians actually did back in the day, which may or may not help. Now, I don't have a background in film or media analysis, but while no one expects everyone to have a take on the latest innovation in for example, town planning, it is sort of expected to ever, for everyone to have their own take on the latest film, Star Wars especially. Am I right in that this expectation exists? And if so, is it a good or a bad thing? How critically should we look at new movies? Is it all right to offload some of that analysis to others? Do we ever lose something in that process? Thanks. Love the pod. Giving you two big hugs if you want them. Harry. Oh, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Uh... I do think I'm that... Just, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Rob. No, I was thinking like... I was thinking we kick it to Dia uh, right away because I, <laughs> I need time to formulate my thoughts. <laughs> like, you're the guest. You do our work. Come here. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, um, like there's a couple things here. Like one, 
um, if I watch a movie in the theater, I have to watch it again before I can really have a critical opinion of it. Because for me, there's just this kind of something about like, you know, uh, the space and the kind of, you know, kind of culture of what the movie theater is like does work on me. So I go in, I'm like, okay, it's this quiet and dark and we're going to watch this, these, these images protected on the screen and there will be sound and it will overwhelm our senses and <laughs> I'm going to walk out of it and I'm going to have an opinion, but it's probably not going to be the opinion I'm going to end up with ultimately. Um, so that's like kind of my one thing um, is I will usually not, unless it's very obvious or very jarring, um, I will not necessarily come away with my formation of an opinion on subtext or even just like just the actual text sometimes i'll just be like yeah that was good i liked that i had a lot of fun and then it was like <laughs> wait a minute that was fucked. <laughs> um and sometimes you know um one of my professors in college told me uh you know there's no harm reading the introduction before you read the work <laughs> and i think that was really that was really helpful for me because i would you know get halfway through something and I'm just kind of like, wait, am I missing this? Or like, it, like, what am I, am I on the wrong track? Is my opinion in here? Like, am I going someplace weird? And then like, you know, read the introduction. I'm like, okay, you kind of given me context that, you know, I was, or I was way off or whatever. And then that did give me a thrust to kind of finish what I was doing. Um, and then think about it more critically um, with that kind of, added side context yeah um though sometimes like you know i will never know if breath of the wild is a game that truly resonated with me or if i was just truly inspired by austin's write-up for it sure um like even after reading it i was kind of like yeah i should go play this game but if i just go ahead and buy it right now i know i'm just doing it because i was affected by this piece of writing and what where do i go with that <laughs> yeah um so yeah, Rob. Uh, Danielle, I think I interrupted you. <laughs> I'm sorry. You keep. I I can like. I at this point in our podcast. No, no, please. Li- no, take no, no. the conch. I have to say, at this point in like our podcasting life, I can tell in your voice when you're like, you've got almost like a little mental chart where you're kind of like rearranging bits of text and being like, all right, here's here's where I'm getting it already. I can like hear it. I can hear it. Right, but we're still in final edits, Danielle. I know, I know. (laughs) take the conch. I know where we are. Okay, so I don't think that most people, and this is is completely just my experience in the world, I don't think that most people uh, read much subtext into movies and TV. I think that most people enjoy the things that they enjoy and kind of leave it at that. Uh, I think that a lot of people around me certainly like to do that. They like to engage with criticism. They like to go on websites and read articles that they agree with and nod along and read articles that they don't agree with and send death threats uh, and <laughs> so on and so forth. Obviously, I'm, I'm being like a little bit uh, goofy about this, but, you know, people get very, very passionate about stuff, of course. Um I think that is a subset of people. I don't think that is like most people, most people out of the, you know, God, what are we at now? Eight and a half billion people on earth, on planet earth, around eight and a half billion people. But whatever the the subset of people who do sort of enjoy 
interacting with criticism and enjoy having that be a part of the entertainment or that a part of their life uh, to the degree that all the folks on this podcast, we all write about games and movies and, and TV and you know media and entertainment that affects us. We, we take it pretty seriously, right? And I think that's a good thing. I think that you should engage in media uh, to, to the level that like you enjoy it on. And also uh, to understand sort of what the messages are in it or what it's actually trying to say. Uh, that's enjoyable for me. Of course, I probably wouldn't do what I do if it weren't enjoyable on some level or if I if I couldn't not do it. Like when I go into a movie or a TV show or anything, even if I'm enjoying it on that sort of very like immediate level, I, I can't not be sort of analyzing aspects of it, right? Like that's part of my training. That's part of what I went to school for. It's part of, you know, just how I'm uh, – my, you know, mental makeup. I like knowing how things work. So of course I like knowing how this piece of media works. I like knowing whether these shots are saying something interesting or whether this character is written well and that's sort of saying something. But I do think uh, that Harry here is not in any kind of minority uh, if if they're kind of talking about, you know, the, the was he a robot or not level of this. Like I, I had discussions with my, my parents all the time about movies and my mom kind of does this half and half thing where sometimes she is just like really wants to go in on sort of what did this mean and what did this movie mean and other times she is absolutely and she was the one who said was he a robot or not like that that was all her like she wanted to know and she was pissed uh when it wasn't really like a a a, you know specifically answered question uh in the first movie she was just like well was he a robot or not and then my dad of course goes in of course he was it was this and this and you know, they kind of had a whole discussion about it. So I I, like, I want to respect that people often go into uh, movies and they just want to enjoy themselves. And like, that's, that's fair. It's always going to be a little bit of me being like, well, you know, the messages that you're being told societally are also very important. And and there's a lot going on here. And don't ever think that that anything isn't political, because of course, this movie is being made in a political world. It's not being made in a vacuum. And And I'll think all those things, but I'll also be like, I know that you had fun. I'm glad. And the last thing I'll say on this is that I saw a tweet the other day uh, that I really liked and I really sort of enjoyed it as a sort of conceptual framework. And I don't remember who it was, so I apologize uh, to this person, but they sort of proposed rating movies on two five-star axes. One, which is just entertainment value. Did you have a good time? And one being like a quality, uh, like not objective in any way because that's... (laughs) almost impossible, but in terms of like a quality of craftsmanship spectrum, the performances were amazing. You know, the cinematography was sublime, you know, all of these kinds of things. And there's sort of a, a four quadrants of like very watchable trash, like very fun trash in one quadrant and one quadrant being like a, an excellent watch that is both enjoyable and well-crafted and you know, sort of one quadrant that's like these are incredibly difficult emotional movies that are incredibly impeccably crafted, but you're never going to want to watch it again because it hurt you. And then, of course, there's the like pure trash and it's not very fun uh, sort of area. And I and I sort of enjoyed that as well as like a bit of a framework for having like very like a beer with friends level discussions of movies. Like I think that's actually a fun way of of kind of like plotting out where things can fall. So I think for me. Um, you know, first you're like, like you were saying, Dia, 
you're not going to catch a lot of subtext on your first watch. Like a lot of times you're just sort of watching along just to like figure out what the terrain is. Uh, and it's only later that you can start to really see how it, how it, how it's filled in. Um, but I think to an extent, everybody and especially critics uh, depends on other people to do a lot of the lifting uh, when it comes to interpretation. Uh, it's why like, you know, anytime, you know, freshmen or sophomores are in like a 200 level like English lit class, mm. uh, for instance, like what they're really being trained to do is a their own sort of like textual analysis, but b uh, see how the critiques of others uh, enrich and deepen a work uh, rather than just sort of a superficial reading. Uh, it is it is an enriching thing, uh, but it's certainly not a situation where like a criticism a criticism existing or an analysis existing means that you should have gotten this because there's no way anyone's going to bring enough analytical angles to bear to see everything that is in areas to see everything that is in a given work. Um, and I think that's, that's the fun of it, right? Like, yeah. I mean, uh, so for, for instance, like legend of galactic heroes, um, I'm watching, uh, and I'm a military history guy and legend of galactic heroes for some reason is very tuned into like weird nitty gritty details of military history. Uh, but I'm also reading a, a website um, called legend of galactic heroes uh, icebergs, uh, which is, it's a, it's a basically a, a series of critical essays uh, closely analyzing each episode uh, from a queer perspective and explaining how Legend of Galactic Heroes is in many ways uh, a very uh, gay science fiction story in which one of the themes is heteronormativity um, poisoning and wounding its protagonists. And there's a lot there that I'm certainly not going to get out of the eyes for it, but it is fascinating to see exchanges or scenes, things that maybe like uh, didn't strike me or things that struck me as odd, but I couldn't figure out why uh, to see these things broken down in detail and set in a different context than I usually look at things. Um, and it's in no way like I'm glad somebody's doing that work because I can't like I have to offload that analysis uh, onto others. I'm not going to be able to ca capable of doing it uh, and reach any kind of interesting conclusions. Uh, but the authors of, of that blog, uh, and I think it's, I think it's a Liz Simmons. Um, hang on. I want to make sure I credit this correctly. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a Liz Simmons and, uh, Rebecca Black who are, uh, doing this analysis and I'm extremely grateful that they're doing it, uh, because it is absolutely like enriching and challenging my appreciation of the show. Uh, so yeah, hundred percent. Like you're like you have to off you have to offload the stuff. Uh, it's it's not a sign that you're being inattentive. However, um, I do think it's good to sort of get in the habit of critically watching stuff. Like increasingly, I just uh, like I don't turn my brain off for a whole lot of things. I end up <laughs> overanalyzing even trash uh, because I just find like. That's kind of how I engage with media at this point. Uh, but 
I also think it's good to do that uh, because it does make your entertainment more engaging. Uh, but also, and this goes to the topic from last week, uh, it's also really important to understand the context that something that something is uh, created in. Uh, it's it's important to understand uh, what the text and the subtext are. Um, yeah. Some years ago. Alyssa Rosenberg is a pop culture critic, uh, wrote a series for, I think, the Washington Post talking about cop shows uh, and analyzing how uh, basically for like 50 years, police television shows, which are, you know, your most predictably popular genre on TV, uh, are have basically like to greater and lesser extents became like police propaganda. Uh, and have create like are really responsible for overwhelmingly like positive public images of police. I fucking love cop shows. <laughs> I love that shit. Uh, give me give me some people solving crimes, and I'm 100 on board. Uh, okay, it's not that simple. Most of them are dog shit. Like I, I don't <laughs> like I like I don't fuck with CSI, uh, right. for instance. But uh, like I, I do like a lot of a, a lot of cop shows, but. Rosenberg in the series of essays is also unfolding how these things have uh, a not so hidden message that like overwhelmingly police are professional, not prejudiced, uh, restrained in use of force. Uh, they use science to make sure they always get their man. Uh, and the criminal justice system is reliable and effective uh, and police are uh, integral to, to, to its proper functioning. Right now we live in an era where we have this massive like societal dissonance where like we had, we, we've ingested this propaganda for years, kind of uncritically thinking, well, it's just a fucking, it's fucking Dragnet 2000 or whatever. It's a, it's a new cop show for a new era, but we are surrounded by evidence that our oversight of police forces has completely fucking failed. Um, and a lot of the way we allow the criminal justice system to function uh, has been, fraudulent or completely fucked up. And I think entertainment had a role in that and it's useful to critique it and pull it apart and see what its biases are. See what message it's trying to slip past you. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I suppose my, um, my question at all times, and this is something that I struggle with a lot and I don't know how both of you kind of deal with this it is how to respond uh, to folks who don't think there's any value in analyzing media. They don't think there's any value in looking at things. They say it's just a movie, it's just a game. I I struggle with how to answer that because I believe in my heart of hearts that it means a lot that these things, it, you're giving like a perfect example right there of how it's actually changed something in society. It's, it's actually created this massive dissonance. It's created an actual public opinion in a lot of ways. How do I... How do I get that across to someone who doesn't have, you know, four years of college of, of media studies or four years of, of you know, grad school film, you know, production or, or that kind of background? How do, how do I get that across to my buddies? You know, I'm riding the ambulance with and we're talking about movies and they, they like, you know, are, are sort of spouting some line. Like, how, how do I get that across? I wonder if Harry is asking this and maybe I'm just sort of like completely internalizing this to my life. I'm sorry, Harry. I'm, I'm taking your question. I'm making it mine. Uh, but 
I always struggle with that. I always have a hard time with that, whether I believe completely as I do that it is incredibly important to do this work and to look at things critically and to have a, a critical lens and sort of share that critical lens, right, with kind of everybody. Oh, it's so I'm like, such an I'm easy struggling question. because I know. <laughs> that person is all, like, I mean, I'm trying to imagine that person who's asked, like someone who's asking that in good faith. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I know. That's always the problem. That's always the hardest but, part. But, but let's, it's somebody who just, who just wants to eat their fucking popcorn yeah. and just like hang out and like know what the plot is. Yeah. Uh, okay. So why does analysis matter to that person? Uh, D. Uh? <laughs> I Come mean, on our show, answer some easy questions. <laughs> I, I, I have I have run into this before, um, uh, especially when I was uh, in college. I was tutoring in our school's writing center, and I, I got a lot of, you know, comp, composition 101 students that came in and had to write their first persuasive essays, and they didn't know why they were having to do this. And, yeah. it, and it was, you know, one of the things is that even people who say they're like, oh, I don't, I don't understand it. Why, why would you bother with all this critical analysis? It's like, well, you're, you're kind of already there. Like, by watching a piece of media, you are engaging with it on some level. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm saying, why don't you ask a few more questions? Yeah. Because while you're going around, like, you know, watching something, even just asking questions about the plot, you are engaging with that media. You are analyzing it. You are like, oh, man, what, you know, what's the villain going to do when he finds out that Bruce Willis has a machine gun now? <laughs> you know, like, okay, you were thinking about the text. And so that is, that's your springboard. And it's like, you are already starting to do this. Why not take it to the next level? Like, yeah. you know, um... And that's that's kind of what I, you know, use people. I'm like, okay, you know, why did you think this was cool even? Just like something basic. It's like, why did you think that was cool? Like, this scene happened in this book or this movie. Like, why was that cool? And then they start talking about it. And I'm like, okay, now why is that important? You know? Um, and that's kind of always at least been my approach dealing with yeah. uh, the few people who have asked in good faith. Um, <laughs> uh, and... Yeah, so so Dia, your approach is basically the uh, the real Dark Souls starts here approach. <laughs> like, you know, it does. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the real Dark Souls of of watching Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think that is I think that is a good one. Uh, like, if someone's asking good faith, like if someone is genuinely invested in like the text. It's worth asking, like, well, why? Like, what, wh wh why this, you know, why here? Like, why do you care about this story and not others? Like, well, like, uh, there was a, um, there was a, a someone had made a comment on a, a forum, uh, the Waypoint forum thread about uh, Monster Hunter World and the um, colonialism aspects of it. And they just were like, there's just not that much here to look at. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just, let's, you know, I'm going to describe for you. Uh, you know, the basic kind of initial, like, you know, call to action of Monster Hunter World. But wait, I could also just be describing British colonialism of the Americas. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm like, did I just describe Jane, uh, Jamestown or did I describe Australia or whatever it's called? Um, and that's just that's just the top level. 
And then you can just, you know, there are things that will then happen that will either support that or it will like detract from it or complicate it. You know, like there's always a little bit more there than, than what you think is happening. Um, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to take the, um, you know, mirror up to life uh, angle, I think with, with something like this, where like every story, every creative work is generally meant to present some understanding or observation uh, about the way the world, like some aspect of the way the world is, or maybe the way it ought to be. Yeah. Um, anytime somebody's doing that, like no matter how trivial the media um, or how trivial it something appears to be, uh, that it is still engaging with some some heady stuff. You, you like it. You are you, anything that is any sort of creative work is is basically trying to deal with uh, issues of existence uh, that that are pr like frequently fairly universally resonant or or fairly or, or fairly important. Uh, even if the piece of media isn't particularly high stakes, it is still trying to. In representing some aspect of the world, it is still it is still engaging with things that actually do have uh, real stakes and, and and real real meaning and importance behind them. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's always it's always worth asking, uh, you know, what what is what is somebody trying to say? Like, why why did somebody create this? What are they trying to say with it? Do what do we think of that message? Do we think that observation is correct or important or does it? Uh, or, or is it trying to play a trick on us? Uh, I think it's, I think it's always useful to examine that kind of stuff, um, and it's fun too. I, I think there's an interesting there is an interesting kind of problem that comes up is that, um, like I remember uh, grading papers for on a uh, one of my professors who issued a quiz that um, one of the questions was what is Keats's Ode uh, to a Nightingale about, <laughs> and it's just about a bird. But people looked at that, like they looked at this poem, this short ode, and they were like, their brains just like completely like froze in fear. And they were trying to figure out what could it possibly be because it had been set up as, you know, well, this is an important poem from 200 years ago and blah, 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 blah. Um, and so then they get paralyzed trying to overanalyze it. And people were writing in all kinds of bonkers answers. Um but then, like you know, you like you take you know, like you know, you take a, like just like a basic game, like you know, Breath of the Wild. Like, there's nothing to criticize there. Why are you trying to criticize? It's like it's just a video game. <laughs> it's like, well, that's just a that's just an ode. That's just a lyric poem. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's just it's you you get this kind of weird like dichotomy, like where we we have set up we we want like you know some media to be impenetrable and mysterious and hard to analyze but worthy of anal analysis and then other media so well it's not supposed to be worthy it's not it's not supposed to be analy analyzed why it's just fun let me have but fun also that media is almost always the stuff that most people are coming into contact with yeah. like you know what i mean like a literary <laughs> A, a piece of literary fiction about, say, oh, I don't know, um, the affairs of writers in New York 
or something like sure. that uh, might be intended to be analyzed and parsed and uh, read into. And so we were like, ah, oh, yes, but that's serious art. And that's, you know, and, and that's that's sort of meant to stand up to criticism. Uh, but yeah, and, and maybe. But the, the point is also like nobody's going to fucking read it or at least not, <laughs> like it's not going to have like a massive cultural impact the way, say, like Marvel movies have like it's important to analyze Marvel movies for all that they're popcorn entertainment uh, because just by dint of their popularity, uh, it's important to sort of ask, like, why does some mass entertainment resonate and some doesn't? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad we're answering the hard questions here on Idle Weekend. Ugh. Harry, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. I like it. Oh my God! Well, I, I I guess if we're uh we've we've made our peace with those excellent answers. Thank you both for helping me with something that I struggle with all the time. Honestly, this is really like an actual thing in my life that I struggle with all the time. Especially when people ask me what I do for a living and they are not uh, connected to this world in any way. Where I sort of describe what my job is, usually they're like, "Wow, you have the best job in the world." And I'm like, "I know, I do." Uh, sometimes there are challenges, but uh, and then it kind of goes into a hilarious place. And sometimes I just tell people I'm an EMT, and that's it. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's actually really helpful uh, to discuss this stuff. But in discussing this stuff, I think it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. And Dia, as our honored guest, is there something uh, you want to you want to share with us that you are enjoying lately? Movies, books, TV, all, all kinds of media are fair game here. Well, my weekend project is actually finishing Bloodborne. Oh. Um, because oh I need, I need to just, I need to just knock out the DLC so I can finally talk to Cameron Kunzelman about it, because um, <laughs> he, he was the one who got me on this kick, and now it has become a, a blood match. Like it, this is, it is, it is, it is literally like if I don't finish Bloodborne and I don't platinum it, my whole brain is going to explode and I'll die and it'll be terrible. So I have to do this, and it is now my new mission. Thanks, Cameron, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> All for all because there's some few nuggets of of colonialism that we want to talk about in it oh, hey. somewhere in the DLC. I'm told. Oh, hey. Are you happy to be on this journey? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I really don't know. Um, so it is a journey, okay. though, that I am having, and um, when I get through it, I'm going to write about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how far how far in this journey are you? I think you're really far in uh, from the last tweet I saw. From I you. have well, I have I have finished the core game. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I got to uh, the 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 uterus out of space, yep. and then sorry, I sorry, what? Oh, bro- oh, Rob, you need to play this game. You need to, or at least watch it. Do I? Watch so, a so let's Rob, play, everyone maybe. wants to tell you that this is actually, you know. It's this this is this is gothic horror and Lovecraft and all of that. But no, this is continuing um this is going so far down the Miyazaki rabbit hole of what is only can only be called uterine horror. <laughs> yeah. Oh um, no. Oh yeah. That doesn't sound that's not an appetizing. I don't know uh, if phrase. I don't know, I, how how many from software like how many of Souls games have you played, Rob? You, you played you I know, I've played some Demon Souls, and I've, uh, that's basically it. Like I've seen a bunch of Bloodborne, okay. and so uh, so From has some 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 thoughts about women. Um, they've got some thoughts about biology, um, 
and uh, most blood- thoughts are women's bodies are natural and beautiful and come in <laughs> all forms and uh, and shapes and there's nothing horrific or uh, psychologically terrifying about them right yeah that would be a, that would be an interesting from software game but it doesn't exist oh my god body positivity horror now I'm trying to like fucking think about that alright sorry <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would. I don't think it would. I think you'd end up in the exact same place. But it'd be like trying to give big ups. <laughs> so, oh my god. So okay. So uterine horror. Um. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the the one of the one of the bosses is basically just a space vulva. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's really what. And and so, um, died to that, and because I knew I couldn't. If I did, I was going to have to start the New Game Plus cycle to do the DLC, and I was not about to do a New Game Plus well, cycle Murgo's to do wet the nurse, DLC. Right to be to be clear, is the Space Vulva, right? Oh no, that's just Murgo's wet nurse. I'm talking about the the oh the, the secret, but not secret, but like you did a special thing to get to yeah yeah I, okay I know what you sorry mean. did yeah. you say the character's name is Virgo's wet nurse Murgo <laughs> Murgo okay well the wet nurse thing is still kind of yeah. oh it sure is what you think. It is well. Okay, it doesn't look like what you think it is, but it. No, it's. Mm. It, uh, uh, <laughs> Rob, you need to play this game. I think you should. Um, and <laughs> it sounds like I'm gonna have to interpret it. Look, you need to play this game, and you know, um, now that I'm, I've like gotten through the core game, I can help you. Uh, you know, if you get stuck in places, because the matchmaking in this actually works. Oh. Um, and and you need to play it because then we need to all talk about. Our feelings yeah. about blood porn. Yes, I like that idea. I like but that idea once I finish that, I'm going to reward myself, and I am going to watch the one of my favorite bad television series that I think it predates. Yeah, yeah, definitely predates Farscape. But um, this was my my before Farscape happened. There was a show called Forever Night. Oh which is about a Toronto cop who works the graveyard shift because he's actually an 800-year-old vampire. <laughs> yes! Danielle, I love it already! It's, it's a, it's a, I think it was a Canadian show? Yeah, it was. It was, oh, it was um, um, but one of the things that's so special about it is the vampire who turned him um, is still around. Still okay. kicking, okay. and um, see the character Nick Knight, uh, <laughs> the eight hundred year old vampire Toronto cop. Um, oh no! Uh, he he realizes that he's done some bad things in his eight hundred years as a vampire, <laughs> and he is trying to atone for them by being a cop. <laughs> so I mean that, that there you go right there. This is the show. Politics after a fashion. Yeah. Um, but he, he's trying to, to serve and protect um, so that he can, um, you know, redeem himself. And <laughs> there's the medical examiner who is like his only friend. And she is kind of like a love interest. She thinks that he's got like uh, a skin disorder. And so she's working on like trying to help him. Aww. Uh, and but he he lives off of animal blood. Okay. Um, and um, but the the vampire who turned him uh is now in Toronto, and he's a late night radio talk show like DJ. Oh my god. 
and the there the they were kind of he was in a they were in a love triangle with this one other sexy vampire lady named Jeanette oh. Ducharme. Oh my god. Ducharme? Yeah. yeah. Jeanette uh-huh. Ducharme. All right. Jeanette Ducharme who is now running a goth club in Toronto. Yes. And it does have some of the most amazing like 90s. We've never been to a club. We don't know what they are but you know, this is what we imagine them to be. We put some colored scenes. strip lighting up and <laughs> like cranked the bass. Well, no, and like it's like everyone there is in like head to toe, just like you know, they like they looked like they walked out of you know like a '90s like like a trip NYC ad. Like they're just head to toe like goth fetish gear and. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, I've never been to a club where this many attractive people are in fetish gear. Um, <laughs> Where it was, where it was huge, and everything was like you know, the mood lighting was actually decent, and you know, your bar was well stocked. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, but basically, it's it's more or less a procedural. Um, you know, it's just kind of your standard cop show, but with this bizarre angle to it, and occasionally we kind of flash back into Nick Knight's life as a vampire. Um, and his time spent with uh, the radio DJ, who it was La- Lacroix, I think. I oh think LaCro- my God! And and Jeanette, um, and, and they and they all have kind of a, a weird relationship dynamic to this day in the series. Um, yeah. So after I finally crush Bloodborne, I'm going to go revisit awful, that. That sounds awful, but kind of good. Yeah, oh, and amazing. he's he's got this like you know like fat dopey like partner um who who never quite makes it like he never quite you know connects what's going on even when he's presented like you know with just full evidence um (laughs) they have like you know they've got the angry captain um and then like i'm gonna say spoilers but it's not really uh they wrote off the two character two of the characters in season three um, in a plane explosion, <laughs> God. like Nick Knight's partner and I think the, the old captain, they get on a plane to go to a convention, a cop convention, <laughs> oh, and the plane just explodes. It's so good. All right, uh, I need, I'm a, I have a question. Yeah, is it really shabbily made as well? Because I'm getting, like, is it going to look like some mid-series, like, mid-modern series Doctor Who? Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 not. It's a little it, creaky. It's a little yeah. creaky. Um, they they it, try to do the thing where basically, they, try, they basically try to do the X-Files thing where just nothing is very well lit at all. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's just like, it's like. You can do a lot with that. You, you can and they do like I mean um, it's a lot better uh, it's a much better show than the uh, the Vampire the Masquerade TV series that was also oh. came out around that time okay okay I didn't know there was one but okay. oh yeah they made they made I think it was called was it Kindred the Embraced oh boy uh, yeah which was real bad can I ask if you've ever seen uh a delightful and wonderful piece of trash called Lost Girl. I actually started to watch it, and I um, 
Never. <laughs> I don't think I got very far. I don't blame you, but. Oh, well, see, what happened was I think I started to watch Lost Girl and uh, my partner wasn't super into it. No, I see. No, you do not have to justify you not know. getting into it. But, no. but see, what then what I found out was is that at the time, Silk Stockings was back on Hulu. Oh. And Silk Stockings is my show. Okay. Okay. That's so, fair. So That's I, fair. I had to go to that. And then I think I just kind of lost the thread of Lost Girl. I love it very much. Uh, it is absolute trash, and I'm just getting. I'm just. I'm just gonna say I'm getting some Lost Girl vibes from the way you're describing Forever Night. That's all. With the cop I'm and getting, the procedural uh, stuff, and all, and the supernatural goofiness, and but there's just a lot of really attractive women kissing really attractive women in this show, and doing more than kissing, and it's hot, and it's really good, and it's like trash that knows it's trash, and it's. Oh, I love it so much. And you don't have to deal with Jennifer Schechter. No, you don't. You don't. Not even a little. So, you know. It's- what, what's the name of the uh, Toronto night cop? Forever Night. Forever Night. Okay. Night with a K. K. With a K yeah. or an N? It's- K-N-I. Yeah. I'm so good. Okay. Um, Rob. Because his name's Nick Knight. Ah, Get it? It's Nick Knight. <laughs> Nick at night. This ain't your right. grandmother's Nick at night. <laughs> I'm so pleased with life that these things exist. We live in a trash universe, but at least there's good trash in it sometimes. So, you know, there's hope. Rob, it's your turn. Tell me about your weekend right. project. Uh, so this weekend I am wrapping up uh, The City and the City uh, by China Mieville, yeah. uh, which is a very strange and very good uh, police procedural. Um. So it takes a little explaining, but bear with me. Okay. okay. So it is basically it is a it is a uh, it's detective fiction set in some like non-specific uh, like Eastern Southern European uh, region, uh, but it's basically it it takes place in the city called Base. And it is a divided city, and uh, it is, it's sort of like a Cold War Berlin type situation, except the two cities, the divided city, uh, is not divided like in a normal way. The two cities are interposed on top of each other, uh, basically. And the border is policed by a collective and mass action of aggressively refusing to perceive the other city. Uh, and so people on one side of the border can see what is in their city. Uh, but even though somebody from the other city might be walking down the street next to them or a car from the other city might be turning into the road ahead of them, uh, they do not see it. They refuse to perceive it. And if you perceive it, and especially if you interact with it, it is a crime uh, called breach. At which point, uh, basically, the secret police of the city that police this division uh, appear perhaps out of nowhere uh, and like men in black the entire situation. But obviously, the, the precipitating event is there's a murder and in no time at all, it becomes clear that it involves both sides of it, both cities, uh, basically. And it becomes sort of an international uh, 
criminal investigation, but across this very bizarre border. Um, and what's cool is the, the first part of the book is you're just trying to get your bearings on what is even happening uh, and try to sort of imagine how it works. But the cool thing is, as the book goes on, it actually does successfully makes it so this concept becomes native to you. You start seeing the city and understanding the way it governs itself uh, the way these characters do. And no sooner have you developed that understanding that the book then need the, the book then has to introduce the possibility that somebody is breaking those rules uh, in a way that sort of undermines the very con- conceit of the city. Uh, and so it's it, it's a really effective piece of fiction, both in. I'm trying to figure out what it all what, what it's actually about. Right. Like yeah. as I'm reading it, I'm sort of thinking about. um the way the world and particularly like urban spaces are full of like invisible boundaries and borders that we refuse to acknowledge or discuss. Right. Like I'm from, I'm from the Chicago area. Mm -hmm. Um, and like many cities, but even more so in Chicago, like Chicago is a uniquely segregated city. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you have unique disparities, uh, between neighborhoods that are adjacent to each other. Uh, and yet somehow like the, you know, in particular, uh, the elites of the city and, and, and wealthy neighborhoods successfully pretend that this other Chicago doesn't exist. Uh, and somehow those boundaries are protected and policed without like, uh, without a lot of clear understanding how those boundaries can seem so solid, uh, when in reality they should be porous as all hell. That's one reading I have as I, as I read the story is it's sort of literalizing the collective acts of unseeing and non-perception uh, that we that a lot of us, you know, uh, perpetrate every day. Uh, but I really dig that this book brings you on that journey and gets almost makes you like see the city as one of his natives would. And then makes you understand the unique horror of the crimes that are going down from the perspective of, well, these are the this is the building block of our society. This is this is how this this space works. Uh, And now somebody's trying to challenge that and and destroy it. Um, And what would have seemed completely natural on page two is suddenly appalling by page 250. Uh, It's really, really cool. Yeah, that sounds. That sounds awesome. Really rad. Um, <clears throat> because it's it's on topic. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about something I am finishing this weekend, and so I, it might come up again. It is something I've talked about before. Uh, I was going to tell you about all the platformers that I'm playing, but I realized one of them is under embargo still, so I probably shouldn't <laughs> talk about it. Uh, but that'll be that'll be coming up soon. So instead, I'm going to tell you. Robin Dia, I am about to finish Dark Matter, the beautiful Trash Can of Claire TV show, uh, sci-fi series that uh, starts as a Trash Can of Claire, and I think actually uh, goes up in quality where it is uh, sort of a sidewalk eclair at this point. Um, I'm in the third season. Is I'm that better? better? Well, let's say it's an unstepped on. Uh, like a pure, like it, it has not been stepped on. It, it, no birds have eaten it or anything. Like it, it just fell, you know. 
Like it's okay, but it's what not kind of street? Camp. What kind of sidewalk? Because I mean, it's Philadelphia sidewalks. Uh, no. Yeah, I mean, I live in Brooklyn, so I, I yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay, how about it's an eclair that has just passed its expiration, but it still looks good. I think that's where it's yeah. All right, that, why don't okay. we go there? Why don't we okay. go there? It is an eclair that it has gone from trash can eclair to just just like a day past its expiration. Cannot be legally sold in a restaurant, right. but but it's probably fine. That's where we're going with it. This I am impressed with how this show has actually uh, upped its quality. So it started out. We we talked about it a couple of weeks ago when I I just fell in love with this beautiful tr- uh, space trash because it was like a really sort of trashy, funny, not very serious show. Uh, despite the fact that it's very much dressed in all the serious sci-fi uh, trappings, it had kind of a goofy and light tone, uh, especially in the episode where uh, uh, Ruby Rose is like a sex robot, and uh, that that was really good. And then and then tried to kill everybody because of course she did. It was great. It was really fun. Um, no, the show has actually done some really interesting things uh, in its second and third season, especially in its third season, which is where I am now. Again, almost at the very end. There's been some genuinely interesting character development the characters uh the the whole premise starts of course with there there's six people on a spaceship they just woke up they don't have their memories and then they find out like in the pilot oh they're a notorious gang of mercenaries but they still don't have their memories so they're going to try to be slightly better people than whatever they were and they and they sort of pick up pick up bits and pieces of their identities and understand like who they used to be and they're still kind of dedicated to not being exactly good guys but like Better than they used to be. And, and it, the whole thing is kind of a meditation on like, well, you got a choice. Might as well try at least. That's which I like about it. It's not it's not doing the Star Trek thing where it's like, you must be the white hat of the universe. It's more like just just try not to to be an asshole, I guess. Like <laughs> just try to do the middle way thing in certain ways. So there's appreciable character development. There's appreciable interesting plot developments and sort of multi-thread plots that are that are kind of going on. There's some interesting stuff with the android and her own sort of, you know, attempt to look at humanity. There's really cool development with the um, a character who is just like Mr. Space Asshole, uh, you know, in the in the grand uh, Chris Remo uh, song tradition. He, he really is kind of like a space <laughs> asshole, but he has gone some interesting places and he's done some interesting things and, and has shown some real growth and some ability to connect with other people. And so I'm, I went from genuinely loving that it was like this trashy space show to genuinely loving these characters. It's, it's almost, it never hits Farscape because Farscape's actually well-written, but it hits some of the notes of Farscape, of the, of the sort of band of space misfits that don't always do the right thing, but they, they try, they do their best and they try and they're funny and they have sex. So it's not like a sexless kind of show. And I really love it. And I'm actually truly sad that i'm about to hit the very end because apparently it ends people have told me like they're warned me it ends on a bad cliffhanger and then it got canceled so i'll never know i'm never gonna know exactly what happens to the crew of the Well, maybe someone will pick it up maybe someone will decide that show was reasonably popular and it had character development and things Uh, and we'll give it a uh, miniseries to wrap things up. Or Danielle, yeah. this is where you can write your own ending for oh the characters. Oh my god. What if I wrote like the greatest piece of fan fiction for this show and I send it in to Sci-Fi or whoever. I think it's Sci-Fi, but if I send it in to Sci-Fi and I say, 
Please, please, please. It's only a day past expiration. We can still eat it. Come on. It's delicious. Look at that lovely sort of chocolate frosting. You write the fan fiction, and then you start the petition. Yes. It it sort of worked for Farscape. It did. It kind of did. Farscape has an ending that you've refused to say. Yeah, I still haven't seen the ending. Uh, It hurts. But I I went there, and, and... It's okay. Yeah. It's fine. I've yeah, heard. Fine. I've heard that it's like they just all they could really do is wrap up some loose ends and that was it, which is like okay. But that's enough. You get to see John Aaron one more time. Yeah. Uh but I am enjoying this new tradition we have on the show where a guest is invited on Idol Weekend and at the end a dubious <laughs> copy of dark matter is pressed into their hands <laughs> and they are given they are given ringing endorsements like the characters develop a lot i i just i have such a hard time because y- you have to understand that farscape hit me yeah God, like i was watching it right when it came out so i was like maybe like 14 i guess sure. and like i will never love characters the way i love those characters same and so it's just like yeah. every time I go to watch a show like that, I'm just like, yeah, yeah but. And you'll never be open to characters like that as and much. That's, and that's the that's... problem. Is I'm not. I'm never. I. I. I, I am very guarded about yeah. allowing myself to let new characters into that space. That's really fair. That that's definitely fair. I I think like, and and I'm the same way. Farscape is my favorite, not even TV show, but like entertainment. Of all time. Like nothing is ever like there there are things I truly love that have come like within orbit of Farscape, and nothing has ever gotten there completely. And I, I was young too, uh, when I first started watching it and, and then have watched it a couple more times since, like as a as a, f- a full grown lady and and still love it and think it's wonderful. Not without problems, but it's wonderful. Um I I don't think Dark Matter does what Farscape <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a Dark matter don't Farscape can, but it's not working. There's no, <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, so yeah, it's it's not nearly as good. It'll never be nearly as good. But but the, I've got a soft spot. But you love it. I have a soft spot in my heart. I do you know how hard it is for a Rhode Islander to say a soft spot in my heart? It is so fucking hard. I'm I'm trying. <sighs> Deep breath. Soft spot in my heart for <laughs> dark matter. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm just sad. I'm just so now sad. Now I just have a weird urge to watch My Fair Lady. Don't know where that came from. <laughs> you got a soft spot in your hat. My yeah. Fair Lady. That's what you got. Oh, spot in my hat. Watch it, the Quahog. Learn to speak. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so Lord. hard. Oh, God. On that on that note, Dia, thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you here. so much uh thank you for having me yeah, i love your writing obviously you've written for us so of course i love your writing but i really really appreciate it and always appreciate your your tweets as well like your twitter feed is probably my favorite twitter feed right now oh so. thank you it's yeah, real good uh do you want to tell folks where uh they can find you online if they want to see your work yeah you can find me on waypoint uh <laughs> and you can find me on twitter at dialacina d-i-a-l-a-c-i-n-a awesome uh, thank you again for being here with us, and, and we're going to do our, our sort of usual outro here uh, as as we head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted 
on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. Keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. We really do appreciate you listening uh, to our podcast here. So we appreciate it if you would tell your friends and your enemies and your buddies who are not quite as good as your Farscape characters. But hey, you know, they're still your buds. You can still have a beer with them or whatever drink of your choice or, or really whoever is in your life that you think might appreciate Idle Weekend. And if you would go ahead, take a minute and uh, write a little iTunes review for us, that really does help us out. And we really do appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney and our special guest, Dia Lucina, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. <laughs> <laughs>